You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're We're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Mic check, please. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Ducks on the Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Jennings. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. My name is John Gordon. I'll be your host. And I'm your host, Katie Burke. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast. I'm your host, John Gordon, and this is part three in a three-part series that I really wanted to do on Houston, Texas and the Houston waterfowling culture. We had Rob Sawyer on, the author of 100 Years of Texas Waterfowling First, who really kind of talked about the east and the west sides of Houston in more broad strokes than I had Shannon Tompkins on, a uh, you know, great writer and a member of, of a great outdoor writing team for the Houston Chronicle for many years. And he grew up on the east side of Houston and really could give a, a much deeper dive into the to the places and people there and we mentioned uh, our guest today during that podcast he was one of uh, of shannon's peers and 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 really covered and hunted the west side of houston uh in depth and that's doug pike doug pike welcome to the du podcast thank you very much my friend and by the way the west side was always better than the east side just saying <laughs> well you know i kind of hunted both i i, I started out uh, as a little kid, basically, my stepdad would uh, would would get up in the crack of dawn and and take me down to Bear Ranch and and God bless him for that because I know he didn't want to do it, but uh, he did it anyway. And so I kind of cut my teeth over there. But when I was uh, I had a friend of mine in high school 
who was a year older than me, and he and he could drive first at, <laughs> at 16, and I was 15, and we started hunting really more on the west side of town because we really were both pretty enamored by the goose hunting culture out there. It was, it was deep out there. It really was. I came into it about in the middle of it. Um, my dad didn't hunt. And, well, I take that back. He hunted twice in my lifetime, as I understand it. And that was about it. Once was on a, I'll tell you a very quick story. The only time he ever went waterfowl hunting was when he was invited by some people in South Louisiana. They jumped in a float plane. I'll, I'll bring you this as best I can. They jump in a float plane. He doesn't know anything about hunting. Four guys, they get dropped off by the pilot. The pilot says, stay here. Listen for the airplane. You'll see the ducks. He's out there. He probably never even fired a shot. The rest of those guys blazed away for 20, 30 minutes while this pilot ran around and around moving ducks. They're on their way out. They land. They've got ducks in the pontoons. They got ducks in the cockpit. They got ducks everywhere. And somebody in that group said, man, this was fun. Let's do it again sometime soon. And their host said, we're going to have to let it cool down. We were hunting in a federal game preserve. <laughs> and my dad just about lost his mind. It's like, oh, my God. So that was his introduction to hunting. Mine was a lot lot more legal, for sure. I got you. That is an interesting story. And uh, probably kept your dad from really wanting to hunt ducks again. I, I think he Pretty was probably much, worried. He yeah. was going to get caught up into something bad. You, you grew up in the Houston area? I did. I was born and raised here. And with him not hunting, I, he did take me to his credit. He He taught me a ton about fishing when I was young. But the hunting stuff came from my friends, kind of like yours did, and then from some of their dads taking me along because my dad just he just flat wasn't interested, and I I fell in love with it the first time I went goose hunting. Something about goose hunting, I tell people that because over here there's a lot more folks that are starting to get into it, especially in Arkansas because of, of just the sheer numbers of geese, you know, the, sure. the specks and and snows. But there before that, there was really no goose hunting culture, and people kind of looked at you crazy that you that you wanted to hunt geese, you know, because I think a lot of it just mm-hmm. revolves around the amount of work involved in it. That it's just you know you can throw out a couple of dozen duck decoys and 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 kill a few ducks, and it, it's really pretty pretty um, easy. But you know, I, one of my mentors back in the day, Jack Sebring, told me, he said, man, he said, you know, uh, duck hunting's for wimps and goose hunting's for men. And so that's kind of how I always approached it, that I kind of had that, you know, uh, that wore that badge of, of honor that, you know, as a goose sure. hunter, I was willing to really put in the extra time and effort to, to get it done and really and get after those birds. So it, uh, uh, it's really a great thing. So Okay, you start. When did you When did you start writing for the Chronicle, Doug? I was trying to remember that. I was a high school kid, eighty nine, eighty something, late eighties, and um, I ended up. I was. I came out of school and and got. Actually, I just took a little time off and got tended bar for a while. Had a lot of fun fishing and hunting in the mornings after getting off of work at two o'clock, and then be out either in a muddy field or down on the beach by about five thirty or six. Um, I, I started out doing that and just trying to figure out what I was going to do. I actually published a little kind of like a swap publication for outdoorsmen. I, I wrote my own little outdoor stories in there and sold whatever anybody wanted to sell, kind of like a swap meet and meets field and stream. Well, not on that level at that point. But anyway, I, I ran into Bob Brister. I did some competitive shooting for a while, some pigeon shooting. And I kept running into Bob at these shoots, 
And I told him how much I wanted to be an outdoor rider and I'd love to do what he did and all that. Out of nowhere one day, he calls and says, hey, do you still want to be an outdoor rider? And I said, I'd love to, man. And he spent about 45 minutes trying to talk me out of it and telling me how hard it was and how I was going to have to do this and that. Basically, what I was going to be doing is fetching coffee for him and dog, it sounded like. And I ended up saying, you're not going to talk me out of it. I got to do this. And started out there and just kept going for 23 years. For people who don't know, the Houston Chronicle, I, I don't know if there's ever been an outdoor, because in, in most shit papers had one guy, maybe two, and the Chronicle had, had the four of you, you know, between you and Shannon, yeah. Joe Doggett and Bob Brister. And Bob Brister was really the dean of Texas writers and, and on a national level too. I mean, he was fantastic. So for, to be able to learn from those guys had to have been incredible because I think I think Shannon started right about the same time. I think it was 89. So the two of y'all just kind of ended up, it looked like covering one covering east and one going west. And, and really, man, reading those articles that y'all wrote just really made me want to hunt geese more and, and become a goose hunting guide. Oh, we had a lot of fun. I'm not going to lie to you. I was actually, I was probably three, four, maybe five years prior to Shannon. But one way or the other, we all four were doing it for a pretty good amount of time. And I still have people walk up to me today and say, man, we loved reading what you guys wrote. We really did. And it made me feel good about, you know, what all of us put into it because it was a job. It wasn't just running around hunting and fishing. Granted, we got to do a lot of that, but um, it was still a job to get in there and, and write stories people would read. Oh, yeah. Plus, you're working on Deadline. You know, it's a newspaper. It's, uh, I mean, you got to, I'm sure y'all burns midnight oil in, 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 uh, at the office trying to get things uh, ready for, it was Thursday and Sunday, if I remember correctly, that, that the outdoor articles came out in. Thursday and, and Sunday were the two big days. I had a column on Wednesday. See, no, I had a column on Tuesday. Dog had had one on Wednesday. Two of us wrote on Thursday. And then I think it was Shannon maybe who had Friday. And then we had two more big columns on Sunday again. We had a page and a half on Thursdays, and it was it was anything we wanted to write about. And a true confession on how much prep we did, Joe Doggett and I would go down. When we had Thursday, a Thursday page and a half to fill up, he and I would go to lunch in the tunnel underneath the Chronicle downtown Houston and have lunch at this Chinese food place. And I'd look at him or he'd look at me first and go, well, what are you thinking? And I'd go, yeah, well, what are you thinking? And between like 11.30 and 12.30, we'd come up with a plan and we'd come up and have that page and a half ready for publication in four hours somehow. <laughs> I don't know how we did it. That's pretty good, man. Neither one of us drank, so. <laughs> that helped, I'm sure. But man, I, I, I couldn't wait in, in to go in, the, in those days. You know, the paper was in the driveway every morning. I used yeah. to send my dog out there to, to pick up the paper and uh, he'd bring <laughs> it back to me. And uh, Thursdays and Sundays, man, the big Carter Country ads, uh, yep. all of it, man, it was just a celebration of, of the Houston area outdoor scene, which is big. You know, you know Houston's the fourth largest city in the world, but not in the world, but in the U.S., but it's yeah. uh, it's got a, a tremendous culture you know, really all the way around it, that the people that hunting and fishing, if you like the outdoor sports, Houston wasn't a bad place to grow up in. Not a bad place to grow up. And, and really, because there's just so much in all directions around here, you don't have to drive far to, to do pretty much anything you want to do in the outdoors from Houston, Texas. Oh, yeah. You can be fishing freshwater, salt, uh, hunting mm -hmm. deer, hogs, doves, 
quail to you know the yep. tremendous duck and goose hunting. It Houston really is at the epicenter of a, a sportsman's paradise. It still is. You can be with you know, a couple of hours. You can be on the bay catching trout or at at, at Lake Conroe catching bass. Sure, it, it it's really a unique city uh, with with a great culture that, that surrounds it. And Memphis is is a lot of the same way here at DU headquarters. We've got uh, you go across the Mississippi River. You're right there in northeast Arkansas, uh, all the way from oh, down yeah. to Stuttgart, all the way up to you know in the Jonesboro area, which is tremendous waterfowl hunting, and really where a lot of the geese that used to go to Texas went. With uh, you know, the rice mm-hmm. base is really still there, which I know with water issues, it, the, the guys really are having a hard time growing rice down uh, southeast Texas now like they used to. It's been a long time since we had anywhere near the numbers of geese that I remember seeing out there. It was the west side itself entered a million-plus waterfowl. And that's a lot of birds to have on any prairie. I don't care how big that prairie is. And it was just, uh, it was a show, a fantastic, awesome show every single morning. I got it out there 14 years and uh, it was just, it was always different. It kind of, to us, it sort of started to look a little bit alike when you see a roost get up over here and just pretty much black the sky. And then over there, it'd be one come up and just dot out the sun completely for a little while and we kind of, I don't think any of us ever got numb to it. It was always something special. The sounds, the sights, every bit of that was truly unique in each and every one of those kind of like sunrises, but it was something we could count on. Just just as sure we could count on that sunrise. That's right. That's right. And one of my favorite times of year was, you know, you'd be getting toward late October. You know, you first mm-hmm. getting that first those first north winds blowing, just just waiting for to hear the first waves of snow geese, you know, fly over in in, in their, you know, in their cries in in the air was just something I, I just yeah. look forward to every year. And without fail, like I said, you know, by the time it got to late October, early November, they were they were that coming in by the, you know, hundreds of thousands. No, I wish we still had that, John. I gotta tell you, it's been probably five or six years since I could, maybe even more, since I could reliably go outside at night in the wintertime and hear geese coming over. If I stood there 10 minutes, I'd hear some. Now you could stand out there all night in your underwear and not hear a single goose go over. Man, that's that's hard to believe. And I really got lucky because I followed them. I didn't have any idea that I was going to do that. Uh, You know, I grew up in Mississippi and, and area and really wanted it to, to come back here, wanted to raise my son in small town, Mississippi. So that's what I did. But when I did it, it was, I moved over here back over to 2005. And that seemed to be kind of a transition point to where a lot of the central flyway white geese uh, and speckle bellies were moving um, more toward east. the east and wintering in Arkansas, uh-huh. Mississippi Delta, uh-huh. uh, some in West Tennessee. And so I didn't, I haven't missed that like like y'all have that that ended up staying in Houston, uh, I I've, I've been able to enjoy uh, those birds every season uh, without Good missing a beat. So I got lucky on that deal. We were hunting them, yeah, but we were hunting them back when it did take men to hunt snow geese. Now with four wheelers, it's just pretty much anybody can. Go. <laughs> it's it's a miracle that nobody died carrying decoys and geese into and out of fields. Isn't that the we truth? A lot of those people pretty hard. It's the we truth, in man. Hindsight, these guys had come into town, stay there till two o'clock and bounce off the pillow and be out there to go put out a rag spread. And I, some of that stuff was, was pretty hard on them, I guarantee you. Oh, that's true. We, you know, as a guy, you you know, you would have your wind up 
you know, about a couple yeah, of weeks oh, yeah. in and be able to throw those rags on it and hump it across those rice fields, which <laughs> anybody who's walked, tried to walk across a rice field knows uh, that the, the, the footing is sketchy at best. So, yeah, oh, you're Lord. right. I mean, guys yeah. that were coming to hunt three days out of the whole year, I, I, I'm amazed that nobody had a heart attack and just fell over dead right there in the in the spread. We were pretty lucky because it, it was. It was very difficult navigating all that stuff. And you get a little fog involved and kind of, I would lose people sometimes. I'd have to start out with four cars and, and tell them to stay real close. Don't anybody slow down. And this is even <laughs> yeah. predating cell phones. So you just had to kind of hope for the best. And I'd get there and I'd park and I'd get out and I'd walk back and there'd be a car missing. The last guy just fell off somewhere. So we'd go out and put the whole spread out and I'd just leave somebody in charge and I'd just try to backtrack. And there they'd be just sitting on the side of the road, didn't want to get lost any more than they were. And with a no GPS system like now, you could drop pins and locations, right? We You had to know where oh, you were yeah. going out there, no, in, especially in the no fog. Idea. The worse the fog, the worse it was. I'll tell you a quick story about fog hunting. I had scouted a place and, and knew exactly where I wanted to hunt it the next day. There had been about probably 20,000 birds in this field. And I wanted to go out like three levees out and then kind of take a west and go about another 200 yards, whatever. Probably about a 400-yard walk was what I was looking for. So I get my guys all ready, and you can't see your hand in front of your face. I said, don't worry, follow me, boys. And we go out there, and we're walking, and I'm really confident that I'm on a good line. There's no cars on the road, though, that morning for reference. There was one road where we could kind of count on traffic, telling us which way was north. I get out to where I want to set up. We set up. The light starts to come up. The birds are moving. They're coming into this field. We're getting a few good shots, but we're not getting as many as I thought we should where we were. And the light comes up a little bit more, and we're shooting and having fun, and it's going okay, but not the way I wanted it to. And there was a guy winged a bird out in front of us, and it sailed off kind of behind me. I turned around to shoot, and I had to pull my gun up because we were about 75 yards from all our cars. We'd walked <laughs> for 30 minutes in all that godforsaken mud and covered maybe maybe 100 yards. <laughs> Man, every every <laughs> guy has got that story, I believe, or you set oh, up right oh, by the God. fence line or, or something, because oh, yeah. you had no idea in that fog. Where, you know, like no, I said, you I could didn't. walk straight. Man, we got to be at the spot, and you were never but at the see, spot, you know, it seems like. GPS ought to whip them that day, I guarantee you. <laughs> So you're doing a radio show these days, Doug. I mean, yes, it's Saturday, Sunday mornings, correct? Yeah. 23 years. You still, so you started it back then. Yeah, Saturday and Sunday. I started this thing in 2000, actually. I um I had some people from what was then Clear Channel, is now iHeart, approach me. And they said, look, we, we want an outdoor show down here. Would you be willing to do it? And I thought about it for about three minutes and said, sure, let's go lunch. Let's talk about it. We kind of hammered out some details. And I was told that when I started doing this, not to be nervous or anything, because I would have one of the guys from the sports department kind of sit in as a co-host until I got comfortable. Well, the first week went really well. He and I had a great conversation. The second, back then it was only one day a week, Saturday mornings, I think around 10, something like that. Now it's 7 to 10 on Saturday and 8 to 10 on Sunday on Sports Talk 790. But anyway, the second week I go in, and I saw the guy in the hall and said, hey, good to see you again. I'm looking forward to working with you again. He goes, oh, yeah, I forgot to tell you. I talked to the sports editor, and he said that if you were doing okay, that I didn't have to come back in anymore. I told him you were doing great. I'll see you. <laughs> that was the longest hour of my life. <laughs> I had no preparation for a monologue. I had all kinds of prep for a conversation with the guy. 
Right, he, right. He was just out of there. He was in the wind before I could even sit down in the chair, man. <laughs> I bet that was, yeah, I bet that oh, was a long hour yeah, uh, talking to yourself. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, now three hours, you know, whatever. It's, it's okay. I'm I'm comfortable with the material. I love what I do still. And I've got a good audience behind me that, that calls and fills in with some great stories of their own. Right. You know, I remember that there were, it seemed like there were a couple of guys who did the early, early, like they they came on at like 5 a.m., I want to say, the that, early well, hunting and fishing show. Are they still 4 on? a.m. And then it's been passed to other people over the years. And now Mickey Eastman's doing it. He's a great old friend of mine. He and I were in boats together, his boat a lot, when uh, when he was kind of just a young fishing guy and I was a young writer. And now he's doing that that show for them on the other station. Yeah, it, it, I just remember going. You know, you know, growing up in Kingwood, we I always had to drive somewhere a long ways to, oh, yeah. to get to a field. So it was uh, we listened to that show and it was great, man. All the guys were calling in, giving the reports of sure. what was happening on on the prairies and, and what they were seeing. Exact and, same format now. Yeah, exact man. I didn't know it was still going mm-hmm. on. I'm gonna have to try to listen yeah. to some of that when I'm back down there again. But sure. uh, but anyway, so folks, if you want to listen to the Doug Pock show. You can do it right online. I checked it out today. It's uh, it, at iHeart. Uh, is it iHeart Media? Is that where it's where it, where it lives? Yeah, well, iHeart Radio. iHeart Radio. Radio. Yeah. You can do it either way, but iHeart Radio. You can just kind of even ask Alexa to play it or something. If Alexa, I don't know if Alexa hunts or fishes or not, but she can call my show. <laughs> she can find the show. And another thing you talk about quite a bit that I notice is golf. I do. I love golf. I still play a lot. I practice more than I play, but only because of time constraints. But I'm still getting to play. Enough. I'm carrying an eight handicap, which isn't so horrible. No, and, no. Um, it's costing me money too with these old bunch of retired guys I play with. Monday's my only day off, and there's a game out uh, where I play most frequently where I also have bass fishing privileges. That's between golf and the bass fishing out there. It's saving my life, Don. I got to tell you, I caught, uh, okay, I'll just tell you real quick because <laughs> I know we're talking about water out here. But I went and played golf Monday, then I had some time to kill before I had to go pick up my son from a friend's house and fished for maybe an hour, maybe an hour and a half, and came across one area where there were, I don't know, I probably caught eight or nine and missed five or six more bites because I don't pay attention. I'm We've got an eagle I watch, and there's all just all this other stuff going, snakes swimming by, <laughs> yeah. uh, missed as many as I caught, but these fish were conservatively between four and eight or nine pounds man and just smoking it right on the rod tip it's too much it's too complicated to go into detail of why but most of the fish most of the fish bit within six feet of the rod tip it was crazy once again man living in houston yeah yeah you've got access to a lot of pretty cool stuff and golf course ponds are great places to fish a lot of times they don't get any pressure really you know yeah well no not that's not true anymore (laughs) used to be yeah, we've got kids sliding under fences and all, and but it's still they're good kids. And I tell them, I just look, just don't come out here in the middle of the day and stand on the on the bank of a, a a lake in the middle of a fairway. Wait till late. Wait, get out here early, but don't don't get in the way or they're gonna run you off. You know, I did that as a kid too. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. 
Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. some uh, some some places and i just yeah. want to talk about some of this stuff because it's a lot different now than it was in in 1980s you think about what the, where these oh, places yeah. were then and what they are now so we're just going to dive right into that katie texas katie texas then probably the closest place to a major metropolitan area where you could meet a bunch of guys have a good breakfast, and then go out with, and drive 20 minutes and be into some of the most incredible waterfowling in the world. Now, neighborhoods. That's it, man. It's gone. Yeah, a lot of those guys whose farms were out there now have, like, if it was the Jordan Farms is now something like Jordan's Landing. I can't remember what the name is, but yeah. they sold out and made sure their name got on the deal to at least remember it that way. But that's about it. A lot of those bigger, bigger farms out there have been long gone for 20, 25 years almost. Yeah, that's right. I don't, I don't recognize it anymore. I, I'm just thinking about no. going, man, there used to be some, you know, there was a field here, wasn't there? I, you know, you're yeah. trying to remember uh, where it was. You're talking about Lyle Jordan. That's one of the great characters from the West Side. And, you hey, know, boy, Texas Safaris. And, and, you know, I mean, he was, uh, he, he really helped kickstart, you know, the goose hunting yeah, as an outfitter over there, along with a couple other guys, we're going to talk well, about. But Jordan Farms, I, I know was uh, was was really one of the premier properties. Right south of I ten, I hunted. That was the first place where I ever actually paid money to be in a group of guys who loved to hunt. And there were ten man groups when with the way Lyle had it set up. And ideally, what you wanted was four guys who loved to do it and six guys who would show up on opening day and then never come back. It was beautiful. <laughs> it was cheap back in those days. I, I remember a buddy, it my, was, yeah. you know, my buddy and I, you know, leased a field in Katy area. I think for like, you know, you could have a guest, right? So we just pulled our money together and it was just me and him. So we, I think we had like 300 yeah. bucks for the season, something like that. Sure. And that yeah, was pretty common. Next to nothing. 
Yeah, you could. There was a lot of land and there were a lot of birds, so it was a, a buyer's market, really. Yeah, yeah, These guys that's correct. Couldn't, they couldn't sell you something that the guy next door couldn't sell you ten dollars cheaper if you know if you wanted to go shopping. <laughs> that's so right. It a was a buyer's people, market. They, yeah, they, it was. They, they, you know, and people don't think about that now, man. It's just like people you know have to pay exorbitant amounts of, of for really good places now. Oh, I'd be scared to even try to buy into a good lease right now. In fact, I know of a place, doesn't matter whose farm it was, but he was he was asking me if I wanted to lease it or maybe find somebody to go in on it. And this was, it wasn't that many acres. It was maybe a couple hundred acres, I think, in which out there on that prairie isn't much, barely enough room to park a car. And so he said, yeah, I'm thinking about leasing it to this corporation, but I wanted to call you first. Is how much you want for it? He said twenty thousand. Huh? Are you selling it? Are you the whole yeah. property? No. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I've seen it here in Memphis too. Really, some of the you know premier places in Arkansas. Yeah, have, have just become yeah. um, to where they're. Oh, you know, you've got to have, have the, the big money uh, to be involved. Yeah, you, you got to have IMP after whatever name you have in front of that on your checkbook. You know, that's right. Oh, there's a, you know, there's still some really good public lands uh, around. You know, the, the people hunt and buy meat White River Refuge and all that over there yeah. in Arkansas and uh, Real Foot Lake you know, in Tennessee and some of the WMAs in Mississippi. But it's just you know, in, in those well, in those days in the there was no public places to go out there uh, and still aren't. I don't believe. So you, you know, you, not you had Prairie, not no. on the Katy Prairie. There no. was nothing. It was all private land. Yeah. The only, the closest place you'd find public land was going to be down on the coast or up on one of the lakes. That prairie was private from wall to wall. It was, it was. Here's another one. A place I really, I like to hunt that, that never got a whole lot of press was the East Bernard Lissy Prairie. Yeah. That was a little south of where we were and the guys down there who hunted it a lot kind of liked it that way too they wanted to kind of stay out of the spotlight el campo eagle lake uh katie brookshire uh, all of those places right off i-10 sealy even not there wasn't right. much connected to sealy but all around sealy there was some really good honey and those were the the places that really loved the spotlight you start talking about Lissy, the Lissy Prairie, half people you'd talk to, even the people who hunted didn't know, how, they couldn't have gotten to Lissy on a bet. They didn't know where it was. That's right. It was right in the middle of everything. Yep, that's right. You know, Lissy, where's that at? Well, yeah. it's, uh, yeah, it's just north of Garwood, Eagle Lake, you know. Yeah. Uh, so you were talking about Eagle Lake, and that, you know, you, I think the sign is still there when you go into town, which says goose hunting capital of the world, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, you know, the self-proclaimed goose hunting cap of the world, I would be willing to bet that if you stacked up all the birds that were taken off the Katy Prairie and off the Eagle Lake Prairie and off, say, between from Katy to Brookshire and north, 15 miles, and then a little bit back east, actually, even of Katy when we started out out there, all those places could hold their own against the others on the right day under the right circumstances any one of those places, you put enough rags in the, on the ground, and you're going to just wax those geese, man. It was great. Yeah, that's right. It, it was, you know, some of the uh, some of the, the 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 bags that were taken back in those days of you know, and that's a lot of times. Yeah, you know, you're talking about the five goose limit days too. Uh, you know, limit shoots were pretty common. Oh, they, well, yeah. The limits when the limits were higher. We still had a good number of limit hunts, but the average, what we looked at more was the average number of geese per hunter, because nationally, the average for the longest time, and it probably is, frankly, still, was one goose per man. 
right, right. one goose per man on an average goose hunt across the country, and we were doing like three and a half, four right in there per person. Right. And that was just nuts, man. That's sunny day, clear day, didn't matter, whatever. We were backing them up pretty good. Yeah, and I can just remember as being a guy, though, people's expectations started amping up when the oh, limit went to 10. Oh, boy. Then it went to 20, and it was like, people are like, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. I, mean, I need to bring a case yeah. of shells. Uh, yeah. No, because the chances of us killing 20 birds a man are going to be a little slim. Yeah, all of Yeah, no matter how high, they, they kept taking the limit up, and it made people... It, it, it's bad in a big way because that expectation is there. Well, if we don't get a limit, it's not a good hunt. But just last year, it was 10. Now it's 20. Last year, you got 10 apiece and you were thrilled. Now you got 10 apiece and you're going to do so good today, did we? No, you, you had an incredible hunt. Incredible you have shoot. no idea. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, most of those guys couldn't shoot anyway. Well, good Lord, you go out there with four guys and bring in 12 geese and you know darn well you shot eight of them (laughs) (laughs) you know the numbers were always a big game for the guides you know i mean the the high kill of the day and all that was was something Mm -hmm. that you took pride in and you're right i mean if you had the high kill you shot half of them at least probably yeah i'll tell you a, a little secret about that though john we were able, after so many years of doing it together, the, the guys who were hunting with Larry Gore out there, that's who I did all my guiding with, and we were able to sit down, and I started this game, and, and we had a lot of fun playing it. We would bet like five bucks a piece or a couple of beers after the hunt, whatever, on who could predict exactly how many birds were going to come out of a particular field in the morning. And we had done the scouting. We knew what was in every field. And you would try to get as close to the actual number of birds your hunters were going to shoot. And we didn't have to do it the night before because it wouldn't be fair. You didn't know who your shooters were. So at breakfast, we'd quiz these guys. Yeah, how long you been goose hunting, man? How many times <laughs> you been this season so far? Have you done any competitive shooting? And just, just get all just asking them 20 questions, <laughs> you know? And then you established the number of birds you expected to bring back based on where you were going. And the closest guy to the number without going over one. It was fun. Yeah, that is a lot of fun. Those guys had no idea what you were doing, asking them those questions. (laughs) No, but we were surprisingly accurate. That's what's amazing about it. It was all these birds flying in all different directions. They don't ever have to, they don't have to leave the ground if they don't want to. And we could get within, usually within 10%. Of the number of geese that were going to come out of that field with those hunters, that's pretty that good, cool. man. Well, yeah, it, it was. It, it's it's amazing too. You know what I'm talking about here as well. That the particular fields produce more than other fields oh, sometimes. Yeah, and I don't know what yep. something in the dirt of those fields. I don't know what it was. Where they were located, they just were better. Well, yeah, there were some that were just seasonally. Every season, some fields were better than others. Uh, as the seasons went on, though, in in normal weather. The geese tended to go to the rice because for every time, every time they bend over to pick something up, they expend energy. And then whatever they pick up gives them energy back. So it's just a, a give and take thing. And that to pick up a grain of rice, they don't get a whole lot for that, but they love rice. Now, if it gets super cold, they would go into peanut fields. They would go into soybean fields. They would go into corn fields where every time they bent over, they got a little more bang for their buck energy wise. So it was just about energy conservation there. And then at the end of the season, in January, they'd get in all this winter wheat and all this fresh green stuff, and it just went through them like a a double dose of (laughs) X-lax, and it thinned them out. It got all that fat off of them for the flight home. This is an amazing 
lesson in biology and, and just animal behaviors, but they were a lot smarter than most of us were. We were still fat at the end of the season. It didn't matter. That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, I've had some epic hunts on wheat fields late that just, oh, yeah. they just yeah, couldn't, yeah. you just couldn't shoot yeah, them out of it. They just, mm-hmm. they, they were so locked in on that wheat field. It didn't matter. And that's why they got to get that fat off of them. Here, here's a couple of uh, iconic places in Katy area. And this is, mm-hmm. this is where I know Gore always met with his clients was, was the country kitchen. Oh man. Yeah. We, um, we kept that place open probably at least in the winter we would push, I don't know, 40, 50, 60 guys through there in a the morning and not be there for maybe 30, 45 minutes. It would just, it would fill up real fast. Most of the guides would get there first and then the hunters, hunters would kind of trickle in and then as soon as we could get them fed and get a cup of coffee in them, off we'd go to drive anywhere from 20 minutes to maybe, uh, there was a place that I love to hunt down in Sealy that we kind of kept quiet, one of the guys and I who went down there, because we were wearing the birds out, and most of the guys thought, well, Sealy's too far from here, we don't want to go there, we'll just take a spot up here, and so we would deliberately not even come into Blaze's place to get the birds clean until like 11.45, 12, maybe 12.30, so that everybody else was gone and wouldn't see these big old straps we were bringing back. And that's another place <laughs> that I wanted to talk about. It was, it, to yeah. me, it was so great because uh, everybody would gather there with, with their birds and, you know, you had bragging rights yep. and everything. It was blazes. And that's a place, that, yep. I, I, the old picking shack seems to be just gone forever. Oh, yeah. There's, I don't know if there's another one anywhere really around here. That was the place, though, where we... He just shoveled hundreds of birds through there probably every day. And I'm sure that guy owned a couple of Cadillacs and Mercedes <laughs> yeah. SUVs over the years. And originally, they would just throw all the feathers away. And then at some point, we started seeing these giant bags like the size of, of porta cans, these bags full of feathers. They found somebody who wanted to buy all that stuff. And so now they were truly using every part of those birds. And uh, and they made, I'm sure, way better money than it looked like. I don't know if you ever went to Blazes, but sure, it didn't look did. like a whole lot. No, it didn't. Somewhere in that somewhere in that house, John, was a really <laughs> big, really secure safe full, full of, money. of money. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> they, they, yeah, you're right. I remember those big bags of, of feathers because the, yeah. the, the pillow market they discovered, and I think they probably made I more guess. money off the feathers than they were doing off picking birds. I suspect so, yeah, because it seemed fairly reasonable for the bird picking, you know, a bucket buck and a half a bird, something like that. That wasn't too bad. Gotcha. Yeah. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. It, it really, you know, hey, anybody who's picked a goose completely and cleaned it and knows yeah. that a, a couple of bucks was, was well worth the money. Yeah. I, mean, I did that one time on the back patio of a townhome I was in once and had about six neighbors complain because it was kind of windy. <laughs> yeah. And I covered every one of their patios with feathers before I was done. I was trying to put them in a bag. The wind just said no. Uh, that's it. The wind, especially in Southeast Texas, seems like it's always blowing most times. Uh, so how long did you guide uh, with Gore's outfit? I did 14 seasons out there. 14 seasons and never been in better physical condition in my life. I mean, it's just amazing. You, know, you talked about it earlier. We did about marching across that mud and, and you couldn't find anybody in your group who wanted to carry a strap of 30 or 40 geese, but that's what we just did, we'd grab a bag of decoys, grab our gun, our shell bag, and then pick up 30 geese and march them out a 
200 yards of mud. That's right. It, it, you know, yeah. I mean, I, I really wish I was anywhere close to that kind of shape again to where oh I could take God. off across yeah. one of those fields yeah. with a bag of decoys uh, alone and much less a strap full of geese. I had so many guys just in some of the muddy bean fields and plowed bean fields were the worst. And I'd have guys show up back at the trucks with no shoes on whatsoever. <laughs> Man, where are your hip boots? Uh, out there. They just say out there and point at the field. And that was it. They just left them. Oh, and people on another aspect of that, you talking about being in shape, was that yeah. people these days, especially the, you know, I would call the modern snow goose hunter who's who's been involved in, in conservation season for the last two decades, is sure. that you had to get your wind up to blow a call all morning long. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was important. Well, you had to know when to blow and when not to blow, too, because there were a lot of times when the best calling was no calling. Right. And that was a hard thing for young guides to learn, especially because as soon as they figured out how to blow a call without having too many sour notes, all, that's all they wanted to do. They'd start calling in the restaurant, you know, and just like, shut up, dude. It's a little <laughs> early. But we, and we had one guy years ago who would, when his hunters would show up with duck calls, it used to just drive him crazy. He hated it. And um, he'd say, hey, man, the pitch of that call sounds a little funny. You want me to pitch it for you? And they go, sure. And he'd take it and just pitch it as far <laughs> as he could out into the lake or mud or whatever. <laughs> said, okay, it's better now. There you go. Yeah. I think every guy's experienced that, you know, the, the caller, course, I would yeah. call it. You know, they, they just uh, oh, they, they wanted to blow those calls, man. One of the uh, one of the game wardens out there, God, I wish I could recall his name right now because I was sitting in his pickup truck one morning on, I want to say it might have been opening morning of duck season, and I just, I didn't have a group that morning. I just wanted to sit that one out. It was a circus anyway, and we were parked at 529 and Katie Hockley Road, I believe. I remember where that Hockley is, yeah. Cut off. Okay, and there were duck calls going off all around us, and David Lowprice was his name, and he turned to me, and we could hear him just everywhere, and he turned to me, and he goes, Doug, the duck call is the best conservation tool ever invented, and couldn't disagree with the guy, and he he may not have been the first to say that, and I know he wasn't the last, but he was exactly right, because it just sounded so bad and so horrible, no duck in its right mind would go near that. And, and especially in the Texas prairie, uh, but by by that time, there you know the mallards were few and far between. So every every duck oh, you yeah. saw whistled. So there was no use oh, having yeah. a mallard call. Yeah. Way better to have a whistle in your ears. I've got <laughs> little widgeons that hang out at that lake I bass fish out on my golf course, and it just I just stand there and stare at them. I miss more bites because I'm just looking at the widgeons. I swear, man. I, I love widgeons. I, I got a chance to go back oh, down dude. and hunt the Rockport area back opening weekend this past oh, year. Saw more widgeons wow. than I'd seen in years in Texas. It was it was fantastic. Probably my favorite duck. I don't want. I wouldn't tell a pintail that out loud, but yeah, I, I kind of like widgeons. It, yeah, and and people don't know that either. Too, you know, that was a byproduct of the widespread pintails loved them. Oh and, God, yeah. You know, that's why you Ooh. really shot a lot of pintails was in a widespread. That um that place I was talking about in Sealy had pintails moving up and down, I believe it was the Colorado River a lot, and then coming off those off the river to feed in those fields around between Sealy and Eagle Lake. And they wouldn't show up until nine o'clock in the morning. You could almost set your watch by them. And we'd take our guys down there and set up and at eight fifteen or so, we've been hunting for two hours and we got two spoonies and a teal. 
And these guys are going, man, I thought you told me this place was good. I'd say, it is good. Just be patient. <laughs> Just those wait. ducks don't show up until 9 o'clock. And they'd start riding me pretty hard. And I would designate one of those guys that said, you get up, go back to Sealy, go through the drive through at Whataburger and buy a dozen taquitos. And when you get back, the tentails will start flying. And nine times out of ten, John, as soon as we sat down and started eating taquitos, you look way up in the sky, there'd be this tiny dot. And that dot on a clear day, I mean, they're up at 10,000 feet, it seemed like. And that dot would start making circles, and then it would get bigger and bigger and bigger. And it'd be three, four hundred pintails that would hit those flats oh, every no, time. Unbelievable. All yeah, and it, it, that would just go on for an hour, hour and a half. It was incredible. Yeah, yeah. It it's just, man, the pintail in this day and age. And, and Ducks Unlimited, we, we've really uh, put a lot of effort in, into really trying to understand why the populations are, are not the levels they used to be and, and trying to really improve habitat to to bring the numbers back up. But, um, you know, we, we, we you know. They're trying, aren't they? They're getting a little bit better, I think. They I, are. From my know, personal experience, anyway. Yeah, man, I, I hunt a lot of places that pintail is frequent. You know, Arkansas, yeah. Mississippi, Texas. So I see a lot, you but there's got to be folks in the, in the rest of the country who don't see any. And uh, it, it because the, the population numbers, they're getting, uh, the last count, they were getting close to, to the season being closed on them, I know, uh, nationwide. So, you know, hopefully this next count that they've, they've, they've had a little bit of a rebound. And a lot of it's related, you know, just like every other duck to water. And uh, there's been some, you know, some, some more water um, in the breeding grounds. This year, we had, there big snowfalls. Uh, just occurred in the Dakotas, and and uh, it needed to go a little farther north than the Saskatchewan, but um, I think you'll see a, a pretty decent count this year. You know, coming off the fact that a lot of the drought situations have been have been eased up on. It, Doug, we're talking about different people, and and, and Larry yeah. Gore being one of, and I really, in my opinion, Larry was the the guy who really brought the goose hunting from a business standpoint into the modern age. Uh, with the, the way he approached it, because you know the guys like you know Jimmy Real, uh, Marvin Tyler, Lyle Jordan, they were really were on the forefront them, yeah. of it. But Larry well, took it to another level. Uh, to, would, you, would you say that was correct? And uh, he really took it to make it a, a, a really thriving business. Yeah, I would. Yeah, he did that, and he was kind of very careful about what he did, about who he sent where. And for example, if we had guys coming in to hunt for three days, we didn't put them on the best spot on the first day. We'd, we'd, let, we'd try to build it up so that their last memory of the prairie was a great one instead of it being maybe kind of a dud. And that sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. But those were the kind of things that he was thinking about and that we as, as guides were thinking about to make sure that the experience was one that they wanted to replicate the next year and not one they wanted to go home and tell everybody it was horrible about. You know, we, he, he did a really good job. Uh, there were some of the things that we tried to talk him out of that he was doing, but he stuck to his guns to give him credit as a businessman, and he he did very well for himself, and I'm I'm happy for him. Yeah, and I don't think people realize how young Larry was to be running that outfit. He was he was a kid, pretty much. He was very young, but he, he had a good business sense about the hunting part of it, for sure. Yeah, that's for sure. He's the first guy that I can recall something at yeah, you know, at borrowing from the Western term for guy, the outfitter. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. Nobody else used that, and now you can. There's all kind of outfitter, oh yeah, waterfowl out, you know, uh, businesses all well, over. That the place. sounds more uppity than God service. You know? <laughs> That's right. I guess it does. It sounds more uh, uh, formal, anyway. 
Yes, it does. It's a formality. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you're still sloshing through the mud at the end of the day, man. I just want to talk about a couple more guys real quick. And here's a guy that you okay. that you got it with, and I never got a chance to hunt with him, but he was almost like he was uh, one of Gore's guides, and he was really kind of a legend, man, is, is Richard Smith. Yep, I was looking right at his name when you said that, as a matter <laughs> of fact. I Richard worked for uh, Lyle early on. Right. That's where he came from. And when he came over to Larry's, it was kind of like, okay, who are you, buddy? And what do you bring to the table? And then we all got to kind of hunt with him a couple of times. And and I knew him and Jamie Prince knew him from over there at Law's Place already. We'd been around him. So, but we, a lot of, especially a lot of the younger guys had no idea who he was or whether he knew anything. He was just somebody taking some of their hunters away. And they didn't like that until they got to know him. He was really good. He was kind of a quiet guy. But he was a really, really good goose and duck guy, no question. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, you know, Richard, you know, everybody was wanting to know, you know, how many birds he got that day, you know, because almost without fail, it seemed like Richard was bringing in, in, in the big kills uh, on a consistent basis. Well, he, he got some pretty good spots, too. Yeah, he got some good spots. People don't understand that either. When you're really good and you're high on the pecking order— you get better fields, you know, sure. and that's uh, that's part of the, something as a young guy you have to realize, boy, you have to pay your dues and you really have got to work hard, you know, to get those fields and they're not going to be given to you. you you've got to earn them and you've got to be good with people, too. He earned every field he got. Uh, last guy I want to talk about, and I don't think it's on that list that I put on there. I thought about him later on because he's one of the true characters of the of the West Side goose hunting scene uh the, the owner in those days of texas hunting products chuck berry oh god yeah i hadn't even thought about chuck in a long time <laughs> yeah. man i wish i had a nickel for every time i drove all the way to his place to find out he was out of what i wanted you know <laughs> yeah sometimes his, his stock was a little sketchy yeah yeah the inventory it wasn't like just going into a sporting goods store in modern day and having shelves and shelves stuff some days you you'd get there and the guy before you just came and bought it all you know? Right. And and Chuck would sell it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he would. Yeah, no matter how close you are. <laughs> <laughs> and he was, uh, and I really, uh, we all enjoyed it when he, he started offering pre-built uh, windsocks, you know, instead of yeah. us having to do it, build them ourselves. That was a big right. deal. And I know he uh, he, he used, uh, uh, you know, made, I think he had a deal with a school uh, that he would, you know, get some of the kids to, to build those mm-hmm. uh, decoys, and it saved us a lot of time. He wasn't tying himself. He was jobbing <laughs> no, it out. Chuck was not tying himself. Yeah, it was good, man. Was, I'd that, like to start out with about 800 you know, to a thousand wind socks yep. at the start of a season, yep. and because you were going to work really well, you were going to break or blow out or something oh, at least yeah. a couple hundred over the course of the season. So you really yep. you know, had to start out with some fresh stuff. But uh, anyway, I want to close on this. We were talking about unforgettable hunts and clients. Is there is there one hunt or one you know set of guys that that you hunted with over the years that really stand out? Um, as far as guys who stood out, it was always the guys who were good shots because you knew that if five geese came over in range, all five of them were coming down instead of one with a broken wing landing 300 yards away or something. So that was fun. The one guy I think who was kind of a, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to try to squeeze in two characters. Okay. okay? I got to make a little note here. So I don't forget because I'm that age. So one guy was the most braggadocious guy you could ever be around. Every time he opened his mouth, he was bragging about how much money he had, how much success he had in business, how all of this stuff. And he called me one day 
And he says, I've got a new dog I want to bring out there. I paid a fortune for this dog. He's the best trained dog on the whole prairie. And I want to go hunting with you and bring that dog. You leave your dog at home. And I've got, I need you to go by the, I think it was an Oshman store or maybe, I don't know if Academy was around back. Yeah, maybe probably would have been around. Anyway, he sent me up to this store on the north side of town because he had gone in and bought every full-body goose decoy they had, and I needed to pick them up because we were going to hunt with them with his new dog. <laughs> no kidding. So I'm, I'm not kidding you. And he <laughs> said, you can have the decoys afterward. That's your that's your tip for the day. I said, cool. Okay. So I went and picked up like 30 dozen full-body goose decoys, maybe more, and we get out to the field the day or two later, we get them all set up. I already bagged them up, and we get them all set up, and he goes back to the car, and he lets his dog out, and we were hunting in a, a, a cut bean field, so there's some pretty good stubble in there, and this dog gets out of the car, and he runs around on the on the asphalt for a couple of minutes, and we start walking across the field, and the dog takes 10 steps into that field and stops, and now he's <laughs> tiptoeing. He's never been off St. Augustine in his life, and we... The guy literally, he's paid thousands of dollars for this dog 25 years ago, maybe more. And he literally picks this dog up and takes him out there. They dig a hole so the dog can sit in the hole with him. So help me, the first bird that comes through, we knock it down. He shoots, the bird falls down. He unleashes the dog and the dog runs straight to the car (laughs) and never would go back into the field. He said, I've had enough. (laughs) <laughs> the only other real character was a dude who showed up from, he was from Italy, okay? And we show up, it's a rainy morning, and we drive down to Sealy, actually, to that place I was telling you about with the pintails, and we're all standing in a barn, and he gets out of his car and comes hustling over to the barn real quick, and then this other guy gets out and goes to the trunk and picks up a couple of shotguns, caged, a shell bag, and all of this other paraphernalia and comes over. And I said, I, I thought you were by yourself. You're the only hunter we had on. I had like four guys, but he was he was a single. And he goes, oh, no, that's my helper. I said, really? So <laughs> yeah. this poor guy in the rain is out there loading this dude's gun for him. He's doing all this and all that. And so help me. He leans over to that guy once and says, I'm a little chilly. And this guy, we, we named him the Green Hornet and Cato, and poor Cato <laughs> takes his jacket off and gives it to that guy while they're sitting in the rain. So I went back to my truck and got Cato's jacket so he didn't freeze to death. But I've just never seen anything. like He had a manservant, basically. <laughs> that, that was the one and only time. We saw guys from over in Europe several times across the, you know, across the years. There'd be a couple of them a, a season come in. But nobody liked that guy, man. <laughs> the characters you run across, man, oh, in the yeah, field. Uh, I, yeah, I hunted with people from every experience level, too. You know, the guys oh, you I'm would sure. love to hunt with again, the guys you can't wait to yep. see leave. It, it just kind of has how it went. But Your guys it, uh, tear up red cars like our guys did? Yeah, right. Yeah, they did. <laughs> <laughs> they tore plenty of red cars. The next Grand Marquis I see going down a rutted, muddy road <laughs> at about 40 miles an hour, sliding sideways close to the ditches. Won't be the first. I'll guarantee you that. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you were talking about great shots. And I can just, yeah, that, oh, that, yeah. that triggered a memory for me. I had a couple of guys from from Louisiana one time. Um, they were fresh out the swamp, man. They they were they were serious, 
and they both had old uh Browning Auto Fives that had, you know, their grandpappy oh, wow. had probably shot, you know, and then passed them sure. down. They they were well worn. And this is before bismuth became a big thing. This is when they the first yep. bismuth shells first really hit the market. And these guys were shooting them. And man, if you could get a goose within sixty yards, it, it was going down. And I thought those guys said, Man, you awesome. sure y'all just can't stay around and like go with every party? Yeah. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. So that'll <laughs> lift my numbers up, you know. I just couldn't believe it, you know. They, they two and three quarter inch old light twelve auto fives, and they just man, yeah. they were, those guys could shoot. And, wow. and so it, it 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 ain't the gun; it's the man behind it, you know. And that's yeah, how that right. goes. But anyway, well, Doug, man, I sure appreciate you being here, man. This has been fantastic. My pleasure. Yeah, I'm sorry I yapped on. My wife says I can talk the bark off a tree, so sorry about that. Well. Uh, you're a radio host for a reason, right, Doug? They, they wanted you to hire you because you, you, know, you can talk a lot about the outdoors, yeah. right? GQ's never called for a, a cover sheet, I can tell you that. Well, you found your niche in life, you know? Yeah, thank you, John. I appreciate it, man. I appreciate you having me on. This has been a really nice experience for me. Man, I appreciate it very much, folks. And, and once again, thanks, everybody, for supporting Ducks Unlimited and wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit www.ducks.org slash podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. Stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit campuswaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside.